Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast of Latrobe Asia, where we discuss the news, events, and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. I'm your host, Nick Bisley, the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia. Australia and East Timor have a curious relationship. In 1999, Australia led the international peacekeeping operation Interfet that played a crucial role in stabilising what was then a part of Indonesia, which had been thrown into turmoil as the newly democratic country tried to work out just what to do with this former Portuguese colony that it had annexed in 1975. Yet Australia was one of the few countries that had recognised Indonesia's claims to Timor and had historically taken a decidedly realpolitik approach to its populous northern neighbour. In recent years, the tensions in the relationship have resurfaced once again. In 2012, Timorese representatives accused Australia of bugging government buildings to gain an unfair advantage in their negotiations about their maritime boundary. What began as odd became almost farcical as the Australian government refused to acknowledge these claims, and then, in 2013, there followed an ASIO raid on the Canberra offices of a member of Timor's legal team, as well as the residence of an ASIS agent. Joining me to help shed light on the problems between one of the world's newest, smallest and poorest countries and its large, rich neighbour is Dr. Beck Strating. Beck is a lecturer in the Department of Politics and Philosophy at La Trobe University and a leading authority on East Timor's foreign relations. Welcome to the program, Beck. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start with this curious exchange in which Australia is being more coy than the heroine of a Victorian novel, while the Timorese are fulminating quite publicly. What's the issue here and and what's at stake in this um, really peculiar exchange? Talking specifically about the spying claims, this is quite a convenient set of events for Timor. So Timor-Leste seems to present an attitude of being kind of genuinely saddened or genuinely upset by the fact that Australia spied on them during the negotiations for the CMATS Treaty. Now, the CMATS Treaty was negotiated largely uh, across 2004 and 2005 between Australia and Timor-Leste, and it was a protracted set of negotiations. It wasn't until until 2012 uh, when Janana Guzmao, the then Prime Minister of Timor-Leste, found out that this bugging had happened. But there was always suspicions among the negotiators, among Timor representatives in 2004 that Australia was keeping tabs on their negotiations. Just to sort of go back to before 2012, in the public sphere, there were already comments by Timorese leaders that they were not happy with the CMATS treaty. The treaty wasn't fair, that Australia was stealing Timor's resources. This is a narrative that has continued for a long period of time and it was gaining kind of traction. So you could kind of interpret that these spying allegations were quite convenient for the Timorese leadership who were probably already looking for a way of getting out of that CMATS treaty anyway. So one of the central issues for Timor with the maritime boundaries is that Australia withdrew from the relevant international legal instruments that arbitrate maritime boundary disputes. And they did that quite deliberately, clearly uh, in reference to this issue with Timor-Leste. So Timor cannot take 
Australia to the ICJ on the issue of permanent maritime boundaries because Australia's withdrawn. So the spying allegations actually allow Timor to take this issue to court not to do with the actual delimitation of the boundaries, but to do with the issues around good faith and that this compromised Timor's position when it was negotiating the CMATs. So this is their kind of get out of jail card. Yeah, so you, yeah, so you, yeah, yeah. So let's let's take it a step back just for people who are not familiar with because it's a bit of a murky or yeah. a bit of a complex issue. So... In essence, you've got a disagreement between Australia and Timor as to exactly where to draw the line at sea, if, that's yep. the, if that metaphor holds, and the consequences that follow from that in terms of exploiting the natural resources. That's right. Indonesia annexed uh, Timor uh, in the late 1975, but even before that, Indonesia and Australia were trying to draw up maritime boundaries. Uh, So Portugal said, we don't want to be a part of that. And this created a gap. Portugal was the administrating East Timor. And so Indonesia and Australia were only able to create boundaries up to the boundaries of East Timor effectively. Yeah, because Uh, um, Timor was a colony of the Portuguese and very few countries apart from Australia, the US and a handful of others recognised Indonesia. So it was the rest of the international community is dealing with Portugal, but Portugal says we're not dealing with UNCLOS. And this is a binding treaty and it sits between Indonesia and Australia, but there's a gap in that line because that reflects Timor's territory. And this line is a lot closer to Indonesia than what it is to Australia. If we then fast forward the legal ground shifts, mm. when Timor sovereign, how does Australia then approach its this this question of where this line should be drawn? The history really matters because it informs the ways that Timor Leste and Australia have to deal with this issue. It's no good to sort of say, all right, well now Timor's independent, let's just clear the slate and start from scratch. Australia doesn't accept that. Indonesia and Australia created the Timor Gap Treaty, which basically created a joint area for exploiting the resources. Following the 1999 independence referendum, Timor-Leste went through a period of state building. And it was well acknowledged that Timor's viability relied pretty much solely on oil and gas, like its economic viability, its capacity to be an independent sovereign state relied significantly on getting access to those resources and exploiting them quickly. This resulted in the Timor Sea Treaty, which was actually signed on the day that Timor-Leste became independent. The Timor Sea Treaty was based on the terms of the Timor Gap Treaty between Indonesia and Australia, and that's become a real bone of contention. Some of the advocates of Timor-Leste's position want that clean slate. They want to go, these lines don't exist. So is that is that what's kind of lying behind this gambit around the espionage? So start from scratch, hey, here's a way we can go to the courts and say that that whole thing is in breach of these fundamental principles that we're not negotiating in good faith. Let's chuck it out and let's start from scratch. So that is, that's, that's where we enter the public diplomacy, if you like, of publicly outraged East Timor and in Australia that's sort of putting hand in his pocket, looking at the floor and saying, nothing to see here, Governor. The real issue, I think, in terms of the the outrage comes from the fact that there was the Timor Sea Treaty in 2002, which Australia refused to ratify unless 
Timor-Leste agreed to what's called a unitization of a particular area, a particular oil field called uh, the Greater Sunrise Field, estimated to be worth about $40 billion. And this is the real issue at the moment. Is that a total? That's the total sort of if you sucked it all out and sold it tomorrow. Yeah, 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 I think so. So Australia refused to ratify the Timor-Sea Treaty until Timor-Leste agreed to a unitisation of the Greater Sunrise Field that put approximately 80% of the Greater Sunrise Field in Australia's territory and, uh, you know, around 20% in the shared area. Like, this is a realist approach. This is a hardcore realist approach to this issue, in, in my opinion. Plain piece of paper that Timorese want, you've got this situation set up that's in which the deal has been struck that's very clearly economically at any rate in Australia's advantage. The Timorese are trying to say, let's reset the clock. You could get inside the minds of each each side's negotiators. What do they want? What's their sort mm. of ideal yep. kind of outcome in the real world? What is it that do you reckon they'd be happy to settle on? Well, I'm, I'm really glad that you asked this question because just going back to the, the terms of the, of the CMATS treaty that was eventually signed, uh, Australia, uh, while they claimed you know, 80% and this unitisation was signed, uh, they ultimately agreed uh, that they would share the revenue of the Greater Sunrise Field 50-50. But they left open the question of uh, how the downstream revenues would be exploited. Timor-Leste wanted a pipeline to go to the south coast in order to develop its petrochemical industry. So this is to the south coast of Timor? T- yep. Yes, gotcha. yes. Um, yep. And at the moment, Timor-Leste's government has been pushing... Um, Uh, a project called the the Tazimane project, which is about developing an oil refinery uh, on the south coast. And there's a lot of criticism from civil society organisations as well as Australia on whether or not they're efficient, whether or not they're economical, uh, whether they represent good value and those sorts of issues. So so while they negotiated this CMATS and it was split 50-50, despite the fact that both sides had signed a unitisation that said that Australia had effectively 80% of the territory, there's still been this ongoing issue around this pipeline. Now, when I went to Timor recently, I was trying to kind of figure out in the minds of Timor-Leste's leaders, were they really trying to prosecute the case that they should be able to develop that pipeline to the south coast in order to industrialize and and develop you know they talk about sustainable development as being a crucial aspect of Timor-Leste avoiding the resource curse or is the priority settling permanent maritime boundaries if Timor-Leste got the pipeline would they be prepared as they have in the past to put a moratorium on settling boundaries a fairly Uh, classic negotiating tactic where you say we want all of this well really you want less of that you want your refinery that's where you're prepared to give ground so actually you get what you want I hypothesise that the permanent maritime boundaries and the issues around sovereignty and how Timor-Leste was presenting sovereignty, I thought that was a way of perhaps pressuring Australia on the issue of the pipeline. I thought that would be the key issue. That's what they were really focusing on. And I was wrong. From my interviews, it is all about sovereignty. 
I had an interview with the foreign minister who said quite directly that, you know, the pipeline issue was a real issue around 2010 and 2011. And now it's all about permanent maritime boundaries and that the public discourse or the narrative sees maritime boundaries as being as important as territory, as land. The ways that Timor-Leste conceives or constitutes of its sovereignty is very much linked to the sea and it's linked to the oil reserves, but it's also linked to things like the exclusive economic zone and fishing and, and just the fact that, you know, they want these boundaries to be settled. But the other issue is that they don't want the boundaries just settled. There's a subclaim to that. And that is, we have the right to settle permanent maritime boundaries according to how we see permanent maritime boundaries, as including all of the greater sunrise field. Given that shift, I mean, is this purely like just an economic story? We want a permanent boundary there that maximises our return. Is there a political symbolic component to this which is actually more important? What's your sense of... My sense is that uh, this is not about oil anymore. This is much more about identity and recognition. This has always been a theme, but it's intensified over time. It intensified particularly after Janana Guzmao came into power, I think, because I've been tracing the public discourses over time. This is an ongoing struggle for recognition. This is positioned by Timorese leaders and as advocates as being a continuation of the independence movement. This time, the occupier is Australia. And in fact, I had it put to me by one advocate that Australia is a longer term occupier of Timorese territory than Indonesia. And you can imagine that Australia probably gets a little bit upset with these kind of characterizations. It's interesting to say that the dispute has now been framed very much in, in political symbolic identity terms, because you know, if you're then thinking, how is this going to end? That's going to make it much harder. As with any negotiation, if it's just about resources, if it's just about bucks, you can yeah. divide that up. You may not get exactly what you want. But when it's, this is who we are, this is about what, what we are, that becomes really hard. So yeah. gazing into your crystal ball, which is polished in front of you, how do you think this is going to end? You are right about the the issues of of sovereignty and rights it's really hard once a state starts talking about rights and entitlements in the ways that Timor-Leste are it's really hard to then compromise on those at the moment Timor has one strategy and that is to win it's informed by the independence movement and The people of Timor-Leste have struggled against an occupier before. You walk into the Resistance Museum in Dili and on the wall is to resist is to win. You know, there was the name of Janana Guzmao's biography and these uh, Ia Luta Continua and it means the struggle continues. And these phrases can continue on to kind of inform decision-making and to inform sort of national identity issues to do with with struggle and resistance and heroism and and so these themes linger and 
Timor has been trying to mitigate its particular vulnerability when it comes to the negotiations, which is around time. Australia has a stronger negotiating position because it can wait a long time. Timor cannot wait a long time. The oil reserves that are currently being exploited, they're expected to run out in 2020. One of the civil society organisations as well respected, Lao Hamatuk, has estimated that the petroleum fund that Timor-Leste set up might only last five to eight years after that. And Timor-Leste doesn't have a diversified economy. It really does rely significantly on oil. So while Timor says, we've been through this struggle before, my question is, well, can you afford to do that? And it seems like the CMATS negotiation, which I, I should point out, was negotiated by Jose Ramos Horta, who tends to take a more pragmatic approach to things. He thinks negotiation is possible. But it's shifted from this pragmatic realist approach where you can compromise to a kind of idealistic approach which suggests that we are right, therefore we will win. From the research that I've conducted, I don't think there's a plan B. So there's a public campaign that continues. There's the international court cases that continue. There's attempts to involve the broader international community to pressure Australia. But I did a presentation on this at one of the universities and I tried to put this issue in the context of Australia's broader foreign policy. And it's not looking really good at the moment when it comes to being a good international citizen. So in terms of gazing into my crystal ball, I don't want to make any kind of outlandish predictions, but I suspect that Timor will be attempting to get what it wants through public diplomacy, through kind of activism, through the courts. It's trying to invalidate the CMATS treaty. Really have to see whether or not it's successful in that court case. But my feeling is Australia is not going to budge on this issue. It hasn't since 1972. And this is bipartisan support. Backed by the big end of town in, in Melbourne and Sydney. So, yep. yeah, I remember talking to an attorney general's negotiator and he said that, that without question, the hardest people they ever have to deal with in terms of negotiation are the Timorese. Toughest of nuts, he said. <laughs> well, that's all the time we have. East Timor is not only Asia's newest state, but it's among its most interesting. Uh, it's been the subject of a few episodes of Asia Rising and um, we look forward to having you back on the program to have another look at how this fares and East Timor on the international stage more generally. So thanks for being part of the program. Oh, thank you for having me. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast of the Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to Asia Rising on iTunes or SoundCloud. And while you're there, leave a rating and a review and spread the word. Thanks for listening.